Hi, and welcome to Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. Author of Remembered, I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. I'm a writer, host, presenter, academic, and a reader. I love being read to. In each podcast episode, a writer will read to us and answer three questions. We might talk about how they developed the characters, the sense of place, why they wrote the book, something they learned through research, and more. Ultimately, through each episode, I hope to get to know each author a little more, and I hope that you do too. Each episode is about 30 minutes. You'll find the author's bio and a bit about the book below the episode. Thanks for joining in. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton, and we're joined today by Gary Paul Hermes. Gary will be reading to us from the Port Edgerton Chronicles. Gary, could you please tell, well, first, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, my pleasure, Yvonne. I've been looking forward to it. Oh, wonderful. So have I. I've been really looking forward to hearing you read. So that's been one of the highlights. But before we get started with that, can you please tell us just one or two sentences about the book? Well, um, it's the novel is is kind of in that area of small town humor and women's fiction. The, the main character uh, is going through a crisis, uh, and the book kind of comes to some resolution. At least book one does. Book two is already in uh, developmental editing, so. We, we we have to come up with a good ending, but lead to the next. Oh, wonderful. So we'll jump right in with questions, too. So Penelope is making the trip from New Mexico back to New York City, and you're from Brooklyn and living in New Mexico. So I'm really curious about where the idea for the story comes from. This is a, is this a true story, a dream. Uh, I had this very elaborate dream about a drinking game staged in central New York in an old town that goes back to the 1600s during the colonial era where people compete in basically a spelling bee but a drinking game. That was, like I said, a very elaborate dream. The, the people challenge each other to spell things. And as they uh, spell letter by letter, they have to walk flagstone to flagstone around the flagstones of the village green. Now, most of them are gray, but there are some brown ones. And if, when you finish spelling, you land on the brown one, well, there's a keg of ale right there. You've got a you're walking around with a stein full of ale. And if you land on a brown one, you've got to drink it up and refill. It's the town drunks basically having an excuse. Uh and if they either fall into a depression in the path caused by this muskrat that lives at the northern end of the green, who keeps burrowing under the path, 
Well, if you fall in the muskrat hole, you're out. If you spill your stein, you're out. Last man standing wins. That was the dream. And I woke up and I turned to my wife, Barbara, and I said, Barb, you're not going to believe this crazy dream I just had. And I elaborated the story. And she said, oh, get up and go write that down. That's too elaborate. Get it before you forget. That was the genesis of the Port Edgerton Chronicles, which takes place in a small central New York town next to the smallest of the Finger Lakes, so small it doesn't even show up on maps. I love that story for this. So could we have our first reading, please? Yes, I'll introduce you to our protagonist, Penelope Simpson, uh, in her environment at the Bean and Gone Cafe, which is in the town of Port Edgerton. Over at the Bean and Gone Cafe, Nellie grabbed a loose wisp of her hair and tucked it behind her ear, blotting her brow with her sleeve as she went. What will it be, boys? she asked with a smile pouring out three coffees. She pulled an order pad from her apron as she returned the pot to its cradle. An espresso machine idly sat beside the gurgling three-pot coffee station. Tourists and students from the community college over in Hadleyville favored espresso drinks and biscotti when they came to town, but for the morning crew, it was coffee and bear claws for the takeout tray and breakfast specials at the counter and tables. Nellie knew what the order would be. The Stevenson boys always ordered the same thing before heading out to their sawmill at the end of the town, north end of the town, where Main Street, or the Postal Road, as townspeople called it, owing to its pre-revolutionary name of the King's Postal Road, crossed Zyder Creek. It was always three big breakfast specials. Two eggs over easy on a slab of scrapple, bacon, home fries, white toast, and coffee. But the boys always enjoyed taking their time examining the menu before ordering. The verdict was as expected. Nellie began calling the order to Larry Jameson, the short order cook. Got it, Nellie, he replied before she could speak. He had also known what to expect. Nellie. She hated that nickname. Her given name was Penelope. In her childhood, Nellie had been taunted with Nellie Jelly Belly, having been a bit chunky in her preteens. And though she was now tall and willowy, that jibe still hit a sore spot. She had hoped to leave that nickname and the painful memories associated with it behind years ago, when she left the sleepy central New York town of Port Edgerton to study art in New Mexico, establishing herself there as Penelope Simpson. But when her father took ill and her mother begged her to come home to help out with what was then Gunther's sweet shop, the responsibilities of running the family business fell to her, leaving no time to sketch, to paint, or to make jewelry. The artist Penelope Simpson 
had to take a back seat. And so it was back to being Nelly, though the jelly belly was gone. The 1890s vintage ice cream parlor and pharmacy still had the original marble counter, the ornate mirror, the soda fountain stations, the booths, the bistro tables. But the town's growing need for breakfast service eventually won out. Pastry replaced penny candy. Pharmacy prep areas became cooking stations. The cigar boxes gave way to the coffee station. After her parents passed on, Nellie thought of returning to New Mexico, but she couldn't bring herself to sell the shop. She stayed and just renamed it. Within it, she maintained her Southwest persona, broad country belts, broomstick skirts, bright peasant blouses, and western boots. Her long chestnut hair provided a dramatic backdrop for the delicate silver earrings she wore and the silver and turquoise beaded necklaces. The jewelry she wore was of her own making, uh, though she never led on to anybody, saying only that it came from New Mexico. No matter what they called her, she was still Penelope Simpson in her heart. But something about the way Larry said her name that morning harkened back to unpleasant memories of Nelly Jelly Belly. Oh, what a lovely opening. So I'm struck by, you. Were, we were talking about this just before we went live, but you're a songwriter and narrative storyteller. And I'm curious about what the novel gives you in terms of opportunities to explore story in a different form, whether through song, and what that difference might be between storytelling through books and the storytelling you usually do when you're writing lyrics. Well, when you're writing a song, you're really very tightly restricted. You've got three to five minutes to tell a story from beginning to end. You have to have a reasonable ending. You have to have enough to give it character and development, but you don't have time to waste. It's got to be down to essences because you've got to rhyme. You've got to have a chorus that's repeatable and a hook and all of the, the baggage that comes along with the tight restrictions of getting a story told in three to five minutes. Now, with a novel, the world opens up. You can take advantage of that extra space to really give an image, paint an image of the character. You can, you can describe her physically. You can elaborate on the environment that she's in the place around her. I mean, something like explaining what the Bean and Gone Cafe was like. I'd never have the time to do that in a song. It was just, uh, you know, it, it's too much information to try to squeeze in and make it work within three to five minutes. Do you think that you would write a song to accompany the book? Oh, I actually dabbled in trying to um, and gave up very early on. I even tried some ideas 
as a musical theater piece. And I, I have friends who I rely on for, for solid feedback, knowing that they're going to tell me the blunt and honest truth. And when I presented my ideas in a couple of the songs, they said, no, it's not working. Give it up. Thank you. Next. <laughs> so instead of that, there'll be another book in the series. So well done. And <laughs> Exactly. It's in developmental editing right now. Oh, wonderful. Could we have another reading, please? Yes. Um, the town of Port Edgerton is like many of these northeast towns that date back to pre-revolutionary times. A lot of history, a lot of uh, tourist-type history, like the earliest house, the first church. You know, wherever you go, there's always that kind of thing in a town. And invariably, it's less than what it presents itself to be. And so uh, we have some of the town people who are in Port Edgerton, and I'm going to give you a little reading of a couple called the Hamelmeyers, who own a hardware store in the center of town. Whenever Gert and Ava Hamelmeyer argued, the whole town knew it. The two were never shy about their disagreements, or discreet for that matter. A thing of legend at town council meetings, what with her being a councilwoman, Ava's voice became shrill and whiny when she raised it. And though Gert was generally good-natured, when he got wound up, his voice boomed across the landscape, and his arms flailed the air like a goonie bird trying to land. Hans and Jan Bremer leaned on the handles of a trolley filled with bags of peat moss that they had just wheeled outside the storefront at Hamelmeyer's hardware store, watching the spectacle. They knew a war of attrition when they saw one. Eva, spring starts next week! It's time, cried Gert Redfaced. The Garden Club has been asking for weeks now. When are you going to bring out the gardening supplies? Ava planted her hands on her hips and leaned into him. I don't care what the calendar says. Winter's not over. She began to gesticulate towards the store's front door. Didn't you hear the radio? They're calling for snow. We need to put out the shovels, the ice choppers, and the ice melt. It's Punxsutawney's revenge, I'm telling you. Hear my woman. If you had your way, the snow shovels would still be out in June. Don't be ridiculous. You're just being stubborn. That poured gasoline on the fire. I'm being stubborn. I'm being stubborn. You invented stubborn. Look for stubborn in the dictionary. There's your picture. Jan shot Hans a baleful expression. This could go on all day if someone didn't intervene. Hans, being the older of the two, knew the task fell to him, a role he'd played countless times before. He cleared his throat, <clears throat> but the Hamelmeyers ignored him. Who was it who insisted on cutting down the order for Halloween lights when I told you they were going to be a big seller? 
Sedeva now waving a finger. They cleaned us out in a day. We could have easily sold ten times as much, but would you listen to me? No! Hans cleared his throat again. <clears throat> oh, the great trend sputter! How many Beanie Babies did you buy, insisting that they were a good investment? They're all over the house! I'm sick to death of them staring at me with those beady little eyes every morning when I shave. You never like anything I like, Ava bitterly complained. Gert threw up his arms in exasperation. Are you going to start that again? Hans cleared his throat louder this time. <laughs> the Hummelmeyers turned toward him. They shouted in unison. Hans let a beat pass as the echoes of their last words died away. Then coolly and calmly he began. You know, there's really not a lot of winter stock left. We could put the rest of the salt on this trolley, indicating a half-filled ice melt trolley to the right of the entrance, along with what's already there. We could bring out the rest of the choppers and shovels and put them in the rolling rack over there, he continued, pointing to snow shovels in a half-filled rack to the left of the entrance. And move the peat moss right next to the salt for now. We could put the few snowblowers we have left in the back where people can still see them if they want one. And move last year's leftover gardening stock out to the seasonal shelves. The Garden Club is really mostly interested in seeds and starter materials right now anyway. Not the rest of it. We can even start building the spring displays out back so they'll be ready to move out as the winter stock's depleted. By then, the new spring stock should start arriving. The Hummelmeyers stared at him, catching their breath. Of course, it's just a suggestion, Hans added. The Hummelmeyers turned to each other for a moment, then shrugged. We could do that, Gert sheepishly allowed. Good work, Hans, Ava added as they turned to go back into the shop. As she entered, Ava couldn't resist throwing one more barb over her shoulder. Now, why couldn't you think of that? Why does it always have to be me? Gert rejoined as they disappeared inside. Hans and Jan looked at each other, shaking their heads, and with a sigh began moving the peat moss trolley into place. What a joy to hear you read these. The, like It feels like you're really embodying the characters and having so much fun with it as well. So it makes listening to it just a real treat. So thank you ever so much for that. Oh, it's my joy to bring these characters to life. I uh, studied drama at the High School of Performing Arts in New York City uh, and uh, with HB Studios for a time. And though I wound up not pursuing that as much as I did music, it still is a joy to just have meet like this dialogue like this to play with. Uh, I think that experience also influenced how I write dialogue. I, I hear it as an actor playing a scene out. 
Oh, that's wonderful. What a difference it makes. It's just, it's just a delight to hear. So here's my final question I get to ask. In writing both New York and New Mexico, and these are places that you know well, what, if anything, were you free to change or reimagine? What had to stay true to the sense of place? And how could you make both settings your own? Well, for New York State, I I could... I had to stay within the strictures of where I placed the town, which is in Steuben County on the southern tier of central New York. So I had general references to real places, real towns, actual rivers, landmarks, and things like that. And having spent a lot of time roaming the Northeast, I had a general sense of the kind of historical things and the the history of the area. For example, the characters or a lot of the characters are either Dutch or German in New York because that was the first wave of settlers in central New York and New York in general. Uh, and uh, there's a bit of a story that actually involves colonial New York as a colony where I had to research specifics and stay true to. But the town itself, I could I could have free reign in. And uh, because the town doesn't exist, I did a reading at one time in earlier um, iterations of the book, and people knew that the story was a story, but they thought the town was real. So I knew I had nailed the essence of that kind of town. As for New Mexico, I was dealing with both Santa Fe and a town called Madrid, which is south of Santa Fe and a big art community. A lot of ex-hippies from the West Coast moved there. So there was a, a, a real history to be had, which I wanted to share with the reader so they had a sense of this town, and real streets and real landmarks that if you were to jump in a car and drive from, say, Albuquerque to Santa Fe along the Turquoise Trail, those things are all recognizable. But within that, I could populate it with quirky characters who had the same kind of quirks that a lot of the artists who live in Madrid bring to the fore. I can have a lot of latitude that way. I wanted to make sure that if you as a reader ever went through Madrid, you would look and say, oh, yeah, I recognize that. Yeah, this is the bend that he described. There's the restaurant he talked about. In in both uh, Santa Fe and Madrid, I wanted those things to hold true. Now, she was making jewelry, so... I had a a jewelry-making scene in the book. That I had to be accurate in. I could take leeway with how she felt about it, having not done it for a while and some of her trepidations, but I spent probably about two weeks doing research on the method of lost wax jewelry-making and pouring metal uh, like gold and silver and 
the kinds of equipment you'd need to have so that I actually gave it to a jewelry maker after it was done and asked him, did I miss anything? I said, no, the process is right. You made it a little dramatic, but the pro well, that's as an author, you, you gotta <laughs> add the drama. But if you found the process accurate, then I've done my work. I love that attention to detail and attention to research. And even like after it's written to go to a professional and say, like, how is this? I think it does give us a sense of the the significance and the importance of setting and of that contract between author and reader. Yes, I, I love that analogy. It really is a contract. You're agreeing to tell a good story, but you're also looking to give the reader, as part of your obligation, reality and truth that if... I always think of it as Easter eggs. If you live there or if you do it, like in the jewelry you recognize it and say, yes, that's right, so that it doesn't detract. It doesn't pull you out of the story and say, no, he would never do that. If somebody feels that as a reader, you haven't kept up your side of the bargain. Right, right. Can we have our final reading, please? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I have a lot of funny readings in this but it's not all fun and games and so i thought i'd go for uh one of my favorite more serious scenes in the book it takes place towards graduation time you know that that time in the late spring early summer when everybody's getting ready for graduation ceremonies and things like that as the last light of dusk faded, three small boats approached Cemetery Island, noiseless but for the faint splash of oars breaking the surface and dipping back into the water. Though they had outboard motors, the occupants chose not to use them. As the boats approached the shore, those on board jumped out and dragged the boats until the bows were beached. To the sound of giggles and whispers, six people unloaded blankets, lanterns, and beer. Most high school students slipped away to the clearings in Burger Woods or to the ball fields to celebrate their impending graduation. However, these couples were looking for a little privacy and the challenge of bravely going where none dared tread. They spread out their blankets in a semicircle, facing the water by dim lantern light. They choked and laughed and passed around beer bottles. Then they kissed with the fervor of teenage lovers, finally unfettered. An eerie sound from somewhere in the woods behind them broke what was now silence. The embracing figures froze in position until they heard the flapping of wings as an owl flew out of the woods hooting as it crossed the beach. The friends looked at each other relieved, then laughed and teased each other. Man, you were scared, said one boy to a girl on a blanket opposite him. I was not, she insisted. Their teasing stopped, and they jumped to their feet at the sound of a high-pitched howl coming from somewhere in the woods off to one side. 
Another howl came from the woods off to the other side. Then silence. At first, none of the teens spoke. They looked at each other wide-eyed, the hair standing up on the backs of their necks. Suddenly, the woods erupted with whoops, screams, yelling in an unrecognizable language and rhythmic chanting. In a panic, the couples grabbed their belongings and ran to the boats. As they pushed off, flames abruptly arced through the air as the whoops and screams grew louder. Amid the din, the kids fired up their engines and tore away from the island at full speed. In their panic, trying to dodge the flaming shafts in the darkness, two of the boats sideswiped each other. There was a loud splash, followed by a young girl's cries for help. Ginny fell in, one boy yelled. She didn't swim, cried a girl in one of the other boats. All the engines went idle as flashlights scanned the water. The gurgling sounds of Ginny's cries drew the flashlights, which revealed her going under. With a splash, one of the boys dove into the water and swam to where Ginny had disappeared. He vanished beneath the surface, then popped up into the beams of the flashlight several moments later, side-stroking backwards toward the nearest boat while towing Ginny's motionless body. Johnny, help me get her into the boat, the young rescuer sputtered. Johnny grabbed Ginny's unconscious body under the arms and leaned back to pull her in. I got her, Jason. Allie, get her legs. Allie just sat at the front of the boat crying hysterically. Allie! Johnny shouted. His cry shook Allie out of her trance. She reached down to get Ginny's legs from Jason, who was struggling to keep his head above water as he tried lifting Jenny's legs high enough for Allie to grab. Allie and Johnny fell back as Ginny's motionless body rolled over the gunwale. Johnny put his hand on Ginny's sternum. She's not breathing! He put his ear to her chest. I don't hear a heartbeat! The young girl in the third boat began to scream, Oh my God! Oh my God! The young girl cried over and over again. Run your boat up to the beach at the yacht club, Jason sputtered. We can do CPR on the sand. Horst, get to the phone at the yacht club and call 911. I'll be right behind you. Horst and Johnny put their outboards full out, heading for the lights of the yacht club as Jason swam back to his boat. He scrambled into it and revved the outboard to a high whine, following well behind the others. By the time Jason reached the beach... Horst was already at the phone, and Johnny was pumping Ginny's chest while a still-sobbing alley blew into Ginny's mouth. The third girl, the youngest in the group, rocked back and forth. Please, sissy! Please don't die! Please! She tearfully repeated. In the distance, the sound of a siren grew louder. Wow. So, Gary, where can we buy the Port Edgerton Chronicles? It's available uh, on special order from any bookstore. Amazon.com has it uh, in all the countries. I have friends who have bought it in Canada through Amazon.com CA and in England through UK. BarnesandNoble.com is carrying it. If you're uh, into ebooks and you don't want to buy through Amazon, Goodreads is carrying it as well. 
a number of local bookstores in, in New Mexico, of course, are carrying it on their shelves. But I've had friends report back to me from across the country who've ordered it, a uh, special order at their local bookstores, which I encourage. I tell people, please buy it at your local bookstore. I'm not going to make as much money on it, and I don't care. I think we need to do what we can to support local bookstores. And I make myself available to anybody who wants to have a reading at the bookstores so that uh, I can share some of these uh, stories within the story and scenes uh, and they can get the added attraction of watching me act out the characters, which is, of course, a ton of fun on my side. It's great, because I was going to ask you, where can people hear you reading? And so I'm glad that you've um, you're, you've said that you're open to appearances and doing readings and things like that. And what about online readings as well? I actually have one online reading of the Hammelmeyer scene which I've, uh, I have a link from GaryPaulHermas.com to bring you to the YouTube where that is, which, uh, again, well, you've, you've heard the Hamel Myers reading, so you know it's a, it's a fun scene. And, of course, you get to actually see me in this same environment that you're seeing uh, now in my studio area where I do the readings uh, for online. Oh, that's wonderful. What a treat. Thank you so much for joining us for the readings, for your generosity and your time. Um, it's been a real pleasure having you at Bookable Space. Oh, thank you, Yvonne. It's really been a pleasure sitting here talking with you and sharing the Port Edgerton Chronicles with you. Thanks for listening to Bookable Space. If you don't already have the book and want to read more, Buy it, borrow it from your local library, read it, and if you enjoy it, review it if you haven't already. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon with your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. Follow me on Twitter at YBattlefelton, on Instagram on why I write Battlefelton for pictures, interview insights, and more.